to episode 179 of the Various Sundry Podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined live from the Vault Studio on the beautiful campus of Grace College and Theological Seminary by my good friend, my colleague, my co-host, and the man who has a belly full of pasta, John Scott Sloat. Pasta is good. Yeah, yeah. So... Here we are. This is the second episode we're recording on this day. So this drops June 6th, but was okay. recorded May 30th. 30th. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So nice little lunch break. You were at the new Italian restaurant in town. Salvatore's or some other Italian sounding name. Yeah. Yep. That's the name of the place right there on US 30. So and pretty, pretty good. Yeah. What, what dish did you have? I had um, – I would call them shells, uh, but they're cava, cavatelli, I think is the I proper don't know name. My, I don't know my pastas. Okay. So. Uh, with like a pesto sauce over it with cheese on top of that. It was uh, delightful. Okay. A little bread to clean up the sauce afterward. Of course. A must. So really, really good. And was this affordable? Um, so somebody else paid the bill. Uh I think my dish was $12, $13. Okay. And I got the half portion. Yeah. Uh, and was that sufficient? Yeah. I thought they made a mistake and brought me the full portion, to tell you the truth. <laughs> okay. Because it was it was, it was was a lot of pasta. Okay. But it was delicious. Good. It was one of those moments where I've never felt more like my dad. So my, my father growing up, uh, we'd be eating and we'd look over and he's done. Consistently, and it was just like, dude, you eat really fast. Mm-hmm. Well, today at lunch, I am just so into this pasta. I'm not talking to anybody. <laughs> it's a black world out there, and I sit up. Everybody's half done, and my plate is empty. And I had made it through the whole thing. And I was like, I feel like Scott Sloat. Right there you now. go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you typically a fast eater, though? I don't know. We've eaten together plenty of times. Do you do you notice my speed? Not not in any dramatic way. Okay. My wife is a very fast eater. Mm. Very fast. Yeah. I don't know if I would have I would have known that about yep. Kate. Yep. Yep. She uh she eats quickly. <laughs> Everything with gusto, John. Yeah. And she's including very, she, eating. She's very enthusiastic. Yes. I appreciate that about her. Mm-hmm. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can find us on Twitter at VNSPod. You can email the show, variousandsundrypodcast at gmail.com. We're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. And we would love for you to leave us a review and a five-star rating. Well, John, since we're recording this in advance, uh, we, we have no sports segment today. Well, something happened. Uh, Warriors' Bob Myers steps down as general manager of Golden State. Okay, which by the time this episode drops, though, will be a week one, old. One week old news. Yeah. And the Jets signed former Patriots tackle Yandi Kajuste. Mm. I have no clue if I'm pronouncing <laughs> that correctly. Yeah. Okay. So those are the two things that have happened in the last hour. Okay. Duly noted. Duly noted. Uh, how about we jump right into our summer read discussion? Sounds good. So last episode, we uh, discussed part one of Brian Rosner's book, How to Find Yourself, Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer. And uh, for this episode, we're discussing part two, which uh, is 
uh, a little shorter. So, just a couple chapters. Just chapter six and seven. So maybe we can do a little bit of a, a little deeper dive into those chapters since we have a little bit more time. Um, so, uh, so part two is oriented towards it's uh, the, the it's entitled "You Are a Social Being." Okay, I agree. We're on the same page. Thanks. Yep. Thanks, Brian. Uh, By the way, to continue a theme from last episode, a lot of David Brooks in this chapter. Yeah. A lot of David Brooks. So uh, chapter six is entitled Social Identity. And um, it, it, it simply is trying to make the case for how we as human beings are in fact uh, social beings. Um, so and, and often formed, yes, by, by others, uh, yes, by, not, by by the virtue of being social. Yeah, those social relationships impact us, shape us, form us. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's not just that we need socialization, but that we're shaped by mm-hmm. our uh, our social environment. So um, yeah, a lot of good stuff in here. Let's start with. Um, He's got a heading called The Social Animal. And under uh, – this is on page 85. Um, he has five general points that he makes. Of course, he's drawing them from your from your boy, David Brooks. Which has a book by the name of The Social Animal. Yes. Um, and these are the five points that Rosner makes. Uh, number one, you were largely formed by your parents. Number two, your thoughts are not entirely your own. Third, your mind is not exclusively your own. Four, your behavior is shaped by the company you keep. Five, you don't know yourself that well. Okay. Uh, Which of these stood out to you, John, as you kind of looked through these? Stand out in what way? Like like – yeah, I think that's true. Or oh, that's you. That's a different take on that. Like uh, whichever direction you want to take it. Well, uh, when he talks about you're largely formed by your parents, one of the anecdotes that I believe he quotes David Brooks on. Yes, uh, people named Dennis or Denise are disproportionately likely to become dentist. That's so bizarre. That's my favorite little <laughs> anecdote in the book right now. Uh, um. Is that that's the case? And he goes on to do uh, Lawrence or Lori are likely to become lawyers. Um, people uh, named Lewis are disproportionately likely to move to St. Louis, <laughs> and people named George move to Georgia. That's so bizarre to me. That's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, and it just it just goes to show to show you that um, the name that your parent parents give you determines something about you. Sure. Uh, oftentimes. And I, I know it's a funny anecdote, right? But mm-hmm. but it is like our parents do shape and form us in ways that we don't fully uh, grasp or realize. I mean, I think about this in my own life. Like I respond to things the same way my dad does. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was never taught to do that. Yeah. But I, I just – and I, I almost can't help it, right? Mm-hmm. I, this This is – I respond in the same way Scott Sloat does, like yeah. eating my food fast at Italian restaurants. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, it is uh, – I think it is easy when you're younger 
to underestimate the extent to which your parents shape you. Yep. And the older you get, the more you start to recognize, I think, oh, wow, I, I'm doing something just like my dad or just like my mom, even though I never was taught to do that or just like, uh, like unconsciously doing that. There's those commercials that even play on that reality, right? Uh, there's the guy that has the book seminar about how not to become like your parents. Those are great commercials. Uh, where it's like, no, no, no. They have caller ID on their cell phone. No need to leave a message with your number. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Um, so uh, and, and even just the – I think this chapter does a great job of um, of helping you understand that for all – that a person might think that they're unique and sort of charting their own course, that you cannot help but be shaped by these realities. Your parents, um, even just the way you think, um, you know, it's it's just uh, we often underestimate. I think we probably, especially in the West, overestimate how much we are. Um, not shaped by those things, mm-hmm. whereas I think other other cultures might recognize more profoundly the impact and effect that past generations and their parents and grandparents have had on who they are. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and you know we talk about parents and number one. Well, number four I think is is probably the the second biggest influence on us. Right. Your behavior is shaped mm-hmm. by the company you keep. You know. The you know probably up to eighteen, uh, the number one group of people that shape you are your parents. After that, it's friends, colleagues, yep. uh, uh, people you frequent yourself around. You know, uh, yeah, those sure. are the people that impact you the most. Yeah, I um, I, I also was struck by his uh, the fifth point here, the idea that you don't know yourself that well. Uh, and he's got uh, a quote from. Uh, this is again from uh, your boy David Brooks. Yes, my boy. Yes. A great body of research finds that incompetent people exaggerate their own abilities more grossly than their better performing peers. One study found that those who scored in the bottom quartile on tests of logic, grammar, and humor were especially likely to overestimate their abilities. Many people are not only incompetent, they are in denial about how incompetent they are. Ouch. Yeah, I mean, part of that just rings true with, you know, work anywhere in America. Yep, And for sure. you'll notice that about people. Yeah. I, I think as I've grown older, one of the things that I um, start to value more in people is people who have a – a realistic self-awareness and self-assessment. Mm. And you know, we've all been around people who have this massive gap between who they think they are and who we observe them to be. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily even mean – I don't mean in like a hypocritical sense, in the sense of like you claim to believe this but you act this way. I'm talking about things like you think you're good at fill in the blank. But when others observe you doing fill in the blank, they would not agree that you're good at that or doing that correctly. I have a great golf game. 
Just when no one's looking. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, um, yeah, it, and it is it's, – it's really dangerous at points when mm-hmm. you have someone who has such a gap between the reality of who they are and their self-awareness of who they are. Mm-hmm. Now, all of us have some gap. No, we don't know ourselves perfectly even if we do you know, above and beyond to try to get people to give us input and feedback. There's going to be some gap between our self-perception and our self-reality. But uh, some people have a dramatic gap in those directions. Well, and from that point, he makes a turn where uh, he talks about our need to be known, mm-hmm. right? That we don't know ourselves that well, but we we have a we have a uh, sort of an unquenchable uh, need or desire to be known by others. Yeah, and to be known fully and accepted. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and then uh, later in that chapter, he. Um, he goes on to talk about uh, just some of the different uh, personal – the link between personal identity and being known. Um, and and that's like you said, setting the stage for what he's going to get to in the next chapter about known by – being known by God. Um, but uh, – and this is – I can't remember if he refers to Keller in this section or not, but – you know, in our last episode, we talked about Keller. One of the things he likes to talk about is um, – I forget the specific quote. I had it pulled up earlier. But but basically, it's something like um, to be loved but not known is, is some form of emptiness. Mm-hmm. But to be known and not loved is a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, I, I think there's – I think all of us at some level have a innate fear – that if people really knew us intimately inside and out, that their opinion of us would dramatically decline, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? You know, that if, you, if, if, if people knew all the thoughts that crossed your mind, would people have the same opinion of you? And the answer is absolutely not. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely not. Which – in my mind, actually, is further reason for why expressive individualism is flawed. Mm-hmm. Because you, I think everyone has to be. If if anyone is realistic, they will think not every thought or desire I have should be outwardly expressed. Mm-hmm. If they're honest, you know, if you push expressive individualism to its extreme to say, well. If this is who your authentic self is, then you should absolutely express it every time. Like, no. Well, and in a world where you push expressive – and let me know if this tracks or if my brain is just going in a wild direction here. You end up at a spot where privacy doesn't really exist and is really selfish, mm-hmm. right? If, if the ultimate good is expressing every uh, jot and tittle of your feelings – uh, then, then to hold anything back uh, is not good and, and yeah. is, is selfish and bad. Yeah. Uh, have you ever read the book uh, uh, The Circle? No. Oh, my goodness. The Circle is about a social media company. Oh, maybe you've told me about this. I haven't read it. Uh, they made a movie about it. The movie was not very good. Uh, but the book really has a, a, a lot of good thoughts in it. But – um, basically, one of the tenets of this of this social media company is like privacy is shell- selfish, and 
they're like, no one should be. Why do you have something to hide? You know, that that's sort of yeah. their their uh, their repertoire. Anyway, fascinating book. Okay, Wor- worth your time. I'll have to look that look into that. Uh, chapter seven is entitled "Known by God." Just kind of going through and building a case for um, how God knows us intimately, and how that is um, really a just a a staggering reality to think that the God of the universe uh, knows us, and not just knows about us, but knows us relationally, mm-hmm. knows us inside and out, um, and. Then he goes through and applies that reality of um, this idea of being known by God intimately and personally. How does that uh, stand up to the different uh, to the five different tests in part one about the about the good life? So how does it help us with suffering and disappointment? How does it help us with pride and envy? Mm-hmm. How does it help us with uh, the weak and the lowly? How does it help us with um, adversaries and injustice, and then the ha- and, and then happiness and pleasure. So I, that's I really think that's a helpful contrast to his use of those criteria in the first part of the book in critiquing uh, expressive individuals. Well, and I think I think we said I think we said this when we went over those five things earlier. That becomes a bit of a grid. Mm-hmm. To put over as we as we look at different worldviews and and different major topics like knowing God or or excuse me being known by God, mm-hmm. uh, big difference. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yep. Anything else uh, in those chapters that uh, you wanted to highlight before we move on? I I don't think so. I I think that that difference between. Knowing God, like know, knowing facts, basically, mm-hmm. and being known by Him is is uh, some verbiage I like. I think I'd like to see pick up in the church a little bit more, right? Uh, that mm-hmm. it's not that uh, we know things about God or or know who He is, kind of like I, kind of like how I knew who Tim Keller was, right? Yeah. Uh, but but um, being known by Him, uh, He sees and uh, to, to uh, butcher another Tim Keller quote. Uh, he sees us to the bottom and loves us to the skies. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's uh, that's true security. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and far more um, secure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and this this is part of what I think the contrast between expressive individualism and uh, what Rosner's laying out is. There is a. There's a security that comes from being exhaustively and intimately known by God and still loved. Mm-hmm. And expressive individualism will never be able to deliver that kind of security, that kind of peace and comfort. Because at the heart of expressive individualism is the constant need to redefine oneself, to constantly express oneself and as he makes note of – I forget where but probably multiple times in the book – that the irony is as much as people assert that this is their authentic self, they are so dependent upon affirmation Mm -hmm. from others and that if someone doesn't affirm their expression of who they say they are, 
then that is like the worst possible thing that can happen. It's, it's, uh, it puts them in a fragile state. Yeah. Um, where, they, where they literally break apart. Well, and or it turns them militant mm-hmm. where there's a demand. You must accept my presentation of who I am. Mm-hmm. You have no choice. You must accept it. You have no room to push back, to disagree or to even try to affirm I can love and respect you as a person and reject your lifestyle, your way of living, your beliefs. That that distinction is gone mm-hmm. in expressive individualism because that is who that person thinks they are. Yeah. To its uh, in its totality. So. All right. Next uh, episode, we will discuss part three, which is. Eight to eleven is what you Eight have to on eleven, the, yeah, that looks right. On the rundown here. On the rundown, yes. Contrary to popular belief, we actually do have show notes. I don't think anybody's shocked <laughs> that you make show notes for us. Yes, um, I don't think anybody's shocked by that. That's true. All right, John, you ready to move on? Sure. So our other main topic for today is something that's near and dear to our hearts, mm-hmm. and it's making a case for the value of. Theological education. So um, besides the obvious reason of needing content, why is this something that is valuable to talk about? Um, well, I, I think it's valuable. Well, you and I both care about it. Yep. So it makes it low-hanging fruit for conversation. Um but I, I think it's also something that in some circles is falling off a bit. Uh, it's maybe not as important as it once was. Um, I think that's a radical understatement. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, but I think there's some other things that that, um, that cause people to not desire theological education as well. Um, sure. Like I think it, it has gotten wildly more expensive in the yes. last 20 years. Yes. Um, Along with – all other forms of all, higher education. All other, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, uh, you know, there there have been examples um, of celebrity pastors who, hey, that guy has a church of multiple thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Didn't go to, didn't get any theological education. Yeah, um, I could think of one that uh, was centered in Seattle, Washington, <laughs> for example. <laughs> yes, yes, very true. <laughs> Um, but I also think – and here is where – here's another reason why some people soured on theological education besides those two. There have been some forms of theological education that are so focused on the theoretical mm-hmm. without any connection to the practical mm-hmm. that – when when people have graduated from such programs, they get into the church and people are like, he can't relate to us. Yeah, He can quote to me from Calvin's Institutes, but he doesn't know how to say an encouraging word to me uh, when I find out that my aunt died or something like that. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah, he might be able to tell me what the Greek word is for this, but there's not a, a relevant point of application in the sermon anywhere. Hmm. You know, it, so I think that can be a stereotype to some degree, but I do think there can be some truth yeah. in some of those criticisms that some forms of theological education have so focused on the theoretical that 
they don't get down to the practical realities of the Christian life and also to ministry. Mm -hmm. I think that's a fair criticism of some forms of theological education. Yeah, I, I, I think so. But we are here to make the case that it is valuable and not just as a, well, if you can manage to find a way to do it, sure, that's nice. I want to go so far as to say that you should – if you're going to be in ministry, in, especially in a full-time vocational um, sense, then you should make every effort to pursue theological education and go after it unless it is absolutely impossible for you to do. Unless you're in the bush somewhere. And... But see, even then, with the advent of online education yeah. – Oftentimes, that is still accessible in some form. Now, mm -hmm. there are places where it's unrealistic. I get that. But um, – Would you talk just briefly? What was your seminary experience? Like you went to a school uh, outside of Chicago that we won't name. Um, why are we not naming it? I don't know. It uh, just, <laughs> just feels like the right thing to do. Okay. Um, what was your experience like? What did you gain from it? What What – what? Uh, how do you? How do you? Looking back on it, uh, mm -hmm. how did it shape and form you? Well, I would say that the one of the primary benefits of my I'll stick with just my master's training. Sure. So I got a master's of divinity, which is sort of the jack of all trades, mm -hmm. uh, ministry preparation degree. Uh, most well at the time it was a ninety credit hour master's degree, which is way more than, than most master's degrees. Yeah. I think I think the MDiv now is anywhere 75 to yeah, 75. normally 95, yeah. I think. Yep. This would be the upper end. And so I would say one of the primary benefits is, is the breadth of the courses you take, whether it's theology, whether it's New Testament, Old Testament, language courses, um, church history courses, all of those things give you fresh ways of thinking about the Christian life and the task of making uh, making Christ known. Mm -hmm. All of them provide different um, lenses to look at things. They provide different um, reference points. So it, it just – it broadens you out very well when it comes to um, – how to approach just about any kind of issue you face in the Christian life or even in min or in ministry. Hmm. So, I mean, I'd say that's one of the primary benefits of of that. And how did that how did that impact you in your in your seminary experience? I'm not sure what you're asking with that one. Like, like, okay. how did it grow you? How did how did you how did you change as a person in the midst of that? Um, well, I mean. I think from a couple of different perspectives. One is that it um, it it exposed me to other thinkers, especially in the church history realm, mm -hmm. um, that pointed me in in new devotional paths. Um, it also, in terms of the MDiv experience, taking the languages took me deeper into the text of Scripture mm. and allowed me to see fresh insights that. I hadn't noticed before mm -hmm. or to appreciate just how a text works, how it mm -hmm. hangs together. 
and to not be just left with, okay, well, here's a passage. What do I like about it? What are some things that are interesting to me? Mm -hmm. Let's talk about those things as opposed to, well, no. How do I determine what the author intended to emphasize here? And the original languages help you really see that a yeah. lot more clearly than just an English translation. And to be able to say, okay, now that I have a better grasp of what the author is saying, I am better positioned to now communicate that to whoever I'm teaching the passage to. Um, and along with that, there was the communal aspect of it. Hmm. And this is why I would say – if you can at all reasonably do this, you should do theological education in person, residentially, with other people in the same location. Mm -hmm. If you can't, then avail yourself to online or other options. But if at all possible, it should be done residentially because there is a community aspect to that. And um, I mean, I know that's your own experience. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um uh, yeah, Hebrew. I mean, there's a family podcast, um, <laughs> but the Hebrew language was a pain. It yeah. was it was hard, mm -hmm. um, and so having uh, friends and uh, ultimately brothers that were able to walk through that together, mm -hmm. uh, what was an incredible incredible thing. In fact, uh, one of them is still on staff here, and yep. we get together regular regularly. Maybe not regularly, but frequently. There we go, mm -hmm. uh, and. Uh, yeah, yeah, just deep, deep friendships. And then uh, another brother that was a part of that, a part of that small group that worked on that Hebrew together, uh, he just was just installed as a pastor, mentioned it, gosh, probably. Lead a, pastor. Installed as a lead pastor, yeah. yeah. Uh, gosh, what was that, six weeks ago now? Sure, something okay. like that. It's hard to, hard to tell with going, going back, and this is, episode's also in the future. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, there were tears uh, uh, thinking about him being installed as lead pastor of a church uh, is very cool. Um, and so thinking about going through that together creates an odd bond uh, between yes. people. And it's not like it was just oriented around the content of your courses. Like you were, you were in one sense doing life together. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, you were often getting together to work on whatever the Hebrew lesson was for that day or whatever. But that grew into a very real and uh, profound friendship where you're talking about a lot of other things besides how do I understand the imperfect stems of the Hebrew verb tense system? Oh, yeah. Um, and those friendships persist to this day. As you, as to you this know. day. And I, that's a pretty common phenomena that even as, as students graduate and move on, they stay in contact with seminary friends. And even though they might be in different parts of the country – uh, they serve as a sort of support network for encouragement and and that kind of thing. You know what's funny is is one of my one of my dear dear friends from seminary. We went to undergrad together, and we were friends. Uh, I'm not sure if we had said, "Hey, I'm going this way; he's going this way." After college, if we had stayed in touch, mm -hmm. but it was really seminary that cemented that friendship. Yeah. And uh, and uh, you know, I, I hate to use this language; uh, gives you a common enemy <laughs> at times. You know, whether it whether it's Hebrew, uh, whether it's like my goodness, I have to do all this reading, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but there's there's something about doing it that gives you this yeah. uh, this sort of band of, of brothers sort of mm -hmm. feel. And I, and I would just add that um, I think one of the unique 
distinctives here of what we try to do at Grace with our residential program is the uh, is our mentor groups, mm. where students are in a mentor group led by a faculty member. They get to know the faculty outside of the classroom more as a holistic human being. Um, and the, the sort of peer relationships that form out of that are often very powerful uh, as well. Uh, and, and all of those, I think, provide just a deeper foundation for living the Christian life and doing ministry that is very difficult to replicate in any other context, I think. Hmm. So talk to me a little bit more about theological education. I, I think I caused us to go off script a bit, and I apologize for that. Um, Talk to me about what else seminary does for a student. Um, what, what what else does it help them with that maybe they're not getting in the context of like a, hey, why don't you just come on staff here and and yeah. do your thing and love people? I think one of the one of the ways that good theological education helps a person is if it's done right, it stretches you because it often exposes you to thinkers, to uh, to theologians, to scholars that otherwise you might not get exposed to if you're just in a local church that you're that you're it, it's easy in a local church context to live in a bit of a bubble mm -hmm. in a good seminary education you're introduced to thinkers outside of that bubble that even if you profoundly disagree with them they force you to think about certain doctrines or certain practices that um, are ways that you otherwise might not have thought about before, even if you profoundly disagree with them. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, one of the things it does is it really helps to build strong, critical thinking um, skills and to do it within a theological framework. I would also add uh, for those that consider themselves sharp coming into seminary, mm -hmm. Uh, seminary also has a way of humbling yes. uh, the individual as they're walking through it, yeah. uh, whether it's the language, whether it's the reading, whether it's the writing. Yeah. Uh, there usually is something throughout the curriculum that humbles uh, the, the proud uh, yes. uh, yeah. uh, throughout, throughout their studies, which is a good thing for them. Absolutely. And I mean one of the things we talk about with the languages is that um, – it is the it is the blue collar work of theological education, and if you're going to do it right, if you're going to do it well, it, you need to develop patterns of self discipline. Oh, absolutely, and um, and diligence that will serve you in no matter what kind of ministry context you go in. You're going to have aspects of your ministry in life that you do not enjoy but just require simple, diligent faithfulness. Mm -hmm. And the languages help build that because you have to just put in the grunt work of memorizing vocabulary, learning paradigms, struggling over sentences to translate. And um, ministry is not just – I think some people can have the perception, oh, ministry is just like hanging out with people. Well, that can be a big part of it, sure. But ministry also is things like I have to turn in this report to the elder to the elder team on this. Mm -hmm. I have to figure out a way to manage the budget this way, or just you know I have to plan strategically for these sorts of things. And for some people, that's like, ooh, I really like that. 
for other people, it's like, oh, gosh, Lord, save me from mm-hmm. the mundane details of that. So regardless of what you're going to do in ministry, uh, it, it does tend to build some discipline um, in, in a person, I think. Um, let's see what else here. Um, what are some what are some dangers you see for the church if a church or a denomination or even a kind of a group of churches sort of downplays or abandons the value of theological education? What what kind of dangers are they walking into? Um. Well, I I do think there is a a danger of of uh, not and and I've seen this before not not thinking through particular issues in a critical way mm-hmm. uh, and coming to um, coming to conclusions that that aren't entirely coherent or connected to scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people would be like, "Ah, eh, you're being weird or, or, or uh, uh, pessimistic about this," but but no, like um, there's a there's a, a number of churches that through maybe not immediately, but through maybe a generation of mm-hmm. not having theological education, yeah, uh, lose uh, that sense of a core and and uh, develop other values, yeah. uh, develop other uh, desires. Um, yeah. And and I'm not saying those things can't be held on to without a theological education. There are some people that are just going to be gifted uh, mm-hmm. with a, with a theologically thinking brain, with an understanding of how texts hold together, yeah. with an ability to read works and break it down. I'm willing to bet you're not one of those people, uh, but uh, they do exist. Um, mm-hmm. But they're rare. Uh, the vast majority of us are ordinary and need to go to seminary. Well, and 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 part of that is it is rare to find the person who is capable of being, first of all, self-motivated and then um, just have that wiring to be able to do that on your own. Mm -hmm. Seminary provides the external accountability of yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's like, oh, I can, eventually I'll get to reading those books or dig into that subject. Seminary is you will do it and you will do it this week. And here's when it's due. And yeah. you will have read that and you will have taken this test. You will have written this paper. You will have given this presentation. You will have taught on it. It's forced accountability mm-hmm. to think through things that otherwise you might be like, eh, I'll just ignore that or I'll, I'll get to it someday. And then you never do. Um and so I just think there is a sense in which a good seminary degree is kind of like an equivalent to the commitment to expository preaching. One of the values of expository preaching is that you just work through the text. And so it forces you to deal with texts that otherwise in your preferences you might say, well, gosh, I'd just prefer to ignore that text yeah, yeah, because it's really hard to understand or it so directly contradicts something that our culture values that I'm going to get pushback for saying this or teaching this. Well, if you're committed to expository preaching, you're going to get to those texts and your commitment to that is going to force you to 
go deeper in your understanding of God's word and connecting it to the realities of the culture. In a similar way, a good seminary degree, in a particular master divinity degree, exposes you to so many things in, in the different disciplines, church history, theology, New Testament, Old Testament, languages, counseling, all these sorts of things. Like It forces you to at least begin a journey on how you think about those things, even if you don't end up a certain place. Because a lot – I think people come into seminary thinking that's where I'm going to get all the answers. Nope. You're going to get some answers. But then we're going to introduce you to about a thousand more questions that you've never Yeah, thought. Yeah, you're going to find the questions you had. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the questions you didn't know existed until we exposed you to something like, oh, I never thought of that. Exactly. Yeah. And here's the thing. Would you? Is it better – and there's an obvious answer to this. <laughs> is it better to have that experience of, oh, I've never thought of that in a seminary classroom or connected to a, a, a seminary course? Is it better to have it there? Or to be out in ministry and have someone in your congregation come up and ask you a question. Yeah. Like, well, of course you want to be – it's better to be in a seminary context. It's better to be in the lab. Yeah. And mm-hmm. be like, I don't know what I think about that. What should I think about that? Yeah. How should I think about that? What do I need to, to, to read to have a better understanding of it? Those kinds of realities. So. Well, if you'd like to learn more about seminary, seminary.grace.edu <laughs> is available go. for you to, uh, to, to go check out. Excellent and well-formed programs. Yes. And we would love to have you come on campus. Yeah. Sit in one of my classes and um, enjoy our other uh, excellent faculty as well. But we do have – if you can't relocate residentially, we do have online options. Yep. So reach out to us and we'd be happy to uh, hook you up with that. All right, John. We need to move on to this day in sports History. All right, this day in sports history, June sixth. Right in the, we're getting to the heart of summer here. Uh, June sixth. Don't remind me. Yeah, we're in June already. Nineteen sixty nine. Joe Namath resigns from the NFL after Pete Rozelle, football commissioner, said he must sell his stake in a bar. Shortly after winning the Super Bowl. Yeah. Hmm. Good old Joe Willie. Joe Willie Namath. Uh, 1986, uh, Jurgen Schull. I believe it's probably Jurgen. Jurgen Schull uh, sets world uh, discus record at 74.07 meters. Yeah. Gone metric. 1992. We're hitting all my teams today. Uh, Trying. New York Mets first baseman Eddie Murray records his 1,510th run batted in. Uh, during a 51-1 thrashing of the Pittsburgh Pirates to pass Mickey Mantle as uh, all-time RBI leader among MLB switch hitters. Wow, that's a deep cut. Yeah. Just wait till the next one. Um, well, my favorite sport. Uh, 1994, uh, West Indian cricket batsman Brian Lara hits world First class record, 501 no out and 390 runs in one day for Warwickshire versus Durham at Edgabashian. Only quintuple 100 in first class century history. (laughs) I didn't know about half those words. 
Yeah. Might as well be reading Hebrew at that point. Yes. Uh, I picked up Warwickshire, Durham, and Eggjabashan are places. <laughs> yes. But that's about it. Okay. Again, when we have Brian Rosner on the pod, he's a big cricket fan, isn't he? Okay. I, I don't know. Oh, I thought he was. I don't know. I, I can ask, but I don't know. Okay. What we probably need to do, John, is we need to find a YouTube tutorial video that introduces us to cricket. Uh, what about what about uh, Ben in England? Is Ben in England a, a cricket fan? Uh, well, as of today, he'll be Ben in Indiana. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I can ask him. Because I, I, I would love a, I would love a, if we could do one of these episodes when we're on vacation and just a. Give me, give me 40 minutes on cricket. <laughs> Explain the so wickets seven to me. people would want to listen to that? <laughs> I think – listeners, let us know. I think they would, I think they would appreciate a, a, a long-form explainer. Why sweaters? OK. You realize that if, if I have Ben on the podcast before my wife, we're, we're getting into some dangerous territory there. Well. Anyway. Continue with this date. Okay. Uh, 1999, French Open men's tennis. Andre Agassi wins his first and only French title. Uh, beats Andre Medvedev. Medvedev. Medvedev of Ukraine. One six two six six four six three six four. Comeback. Yeah, two sets down. Go, go, America. Um, and then finally, uh, 2018, LeBron James. Eclipses Michael Jordan's record of 109 for most 30-point games in NBA playoff history in the Cleveland Cavaliers' 110-102 Game 3 of the finals loss to the Golden State Warriors. Okay. Who do you like out of that, John? Um, My goodness. I kind of like Andre Agassi with the come-from-behind – Victory? I can go with I can go with Agassi. That's now fine. did Agassi had ninety nine? Mm-hmm. That'd have been I, bald Agassi, wouldn't it? Um, that's the Agassi yeah, I remember. Would have been that's later. Would have been bald Agassi. Yeah, I know there was a, a well, early. It was like the wild long hair, long haired Agassi. Yeah, uh, for the longest time. Yep, Andre Agassi. It is one thing you liked. Uh, well, this week I am going to highlight a podcast I have started listening to actually at your recommendation. Oh. Uh, I don't know if you remember recommending this to me, uh, but Reign of Error? Yes. Have you heard it? You, you, well, I recommend well, yeah, it. You yeah. recommend I haven't it. listened to it, but yes. Is it good? Uh, so it, it's from Wondery, yeah. the, the podcast company, and they always have a pretty big bent in their podcasting yeah. when they do something like this. Yeah. However, in this case, I like their bent. <laughs> right. um, it's against James Dolan. Yeah. Uh, I do not care for James Dolan. Yeah. Uh, and so they are, uh, I think, I think four of six episodes or four or five episodes in right now. Well, we're, we're in my, in the spine, uh, space time continuum where I sit currently. <laughs> Uh, yes. They're through four episodes okay. and they're, they'll drop a fifth. But uh, James Dolan, wild dude. Yeah. Um, I'll recommend another Knicks podcast for those of you that uh, that really get excited about this um, at, at the next step. That's what I'll do. Okay. But, Sounds good. But yes, James uh, – Reign of Error. 
there you uh, go. with a former NPR host who kind of annoys me a little bit, if I'm honest, but <laughs> uh, talks about Oakley being thrown out of a garden and mm-hmm. uh, about the Jets trying to get a new stadium on the west side at the trail yard and Dolan blocking it mm. and all sorts of things. All right. Scum of the earth, that James Dolan, Jimmy. <laughs> So, J- JD and the Straight Shots. Have you heard of this band? No. Yeah, yeah. It's it's something special. All right. Uh, one anecdote from it. Can I give you one sure. quick anecdote? It's your podcast. So, uh, James Dolan has a band called JD and the Straight Shots. They have a Facebook group. An individual went on the Facebook group for his band and wrote, "Sell the team." That individual was met at the gate at Madison Square Garden when he had a ticket to the game. And I can't remember if it was asked to leave or just harassed a little bit by security on the way in. Hmm. Because they have a hit list of people that they don't like <laughs> who say bad things about James Dolan. Nice. A classy, classy yeah. dude. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a fine, uh, fine organization right there. All right. So mine – is uh, actually received I came in the office today um, in my current location in the space-time continuum. Yep, yep. Uh, came in, found a little package from Crossway. Always love a good package from Crossway. Mm-hmm. Always good stuff in there. Open it up. It was the Korean version of The God Who Judges and Saves. Nice. So they have obviously translated it. It's available in Korean. Tell all your Korean friends hmm. they can find it. But yes – it's always fascinating to look at a at a book and and see your name on the cover. Yeah, but it's all in Korean. <laughs> and so it's like, well, I assume it's a good translation. I am excited that it's reaching a broader audience. Yep. So that's kind of cool. That's wonderful. That's the third book of mine that is available in Korean. Nice. Yeah. So, how, how do your books sell in Korea? Are you like a superstar over no, there? I have no clue. You doing endorsements in Korea? <laughs> Not yet. Okay. Not yet. Maybe someday. All right. We have talked. Summer read. Brian Rosner, How to Find Yourself. Next episode, be ready for part four. Sorry, part three, chapters eight through 11. We've talked about the case for theological education. We've talked about Andre Agassi. We've bumbled our way through some cricket talk. We have talked about the Reign of Error. Reign of Error. Yes, Yeah, that's right. And we've talked about the Korean version of The God Who Judges and Saves. So I think by definition, we have covered our various and sundry topics. And all that's left to say is, until next time, the Lord bless you all real good. Later. Later.